Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at Menards. Former MLS pro turned analyst turned soccer business mogul Bobby Warshaw joins It's Called Soccer today. And he is about to say some incredibly incendiary things that will challenge every belief that you hold dear about the world of soccer. I'm recording this introduction a few days after I had this conversation with Bobby Warshaw, and there are still things that he said within the conversation that I keep going back to every single day. And as wrong as it sounded in the moment, I keep thinking to myself, damn, Bobby had a point. What you are about to listen to is one of the most genuine, honest, and thought-provoking conversations that I've had since the channel started. And if you appreciate the work that I do, please do consider becoming a Patreon member as it helps us to bring you this conversation and more like it ad-free. I hope you enjoy this candid conversation with Bobby Warshaw. Former professional player and now turned analyst and incredibly talented author, Bobby Warshaw is joining It's Called Soccer today. Bobby, how are you? What's up? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you for those kind words. I forgot about the author part at this point, so I appreciate that. That's kind of... You know, that's one of the more recent things in life. And I read it during COVID, uh, which kind of got me reconnected back to your Twitter and everything. So I'm I'm happy to remind you because uh, if it helps just one person hear about the book and hear about your story, then I think it's a good thing. Thank you. I appreciate that. What What was the, you know, now that you're two years removed from reading or three years, do you remember the thing that resonated the most with you? Uh, so there's, there's two moments. The, the first is having like the luck of the coach and the team align with where you are in your career and being in the right headspace. And it seems like you, you can control some of your transfer opportunities. You can't control others. You can't control if a coach gets fired in the middle of the season and what the next coach feels about you. Um, and that's just something that you don't really think about having not played the game professionally. So as, for me, it was a really nice insight into like the humanity and the risk taking that you have to do within your transfer opportunities and the decisions that you make throughout your career, especially if you're not like one of the, and please don't, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but not one of the like premier players within the, the country. So for you to think about your opportunities and like where the risks lie, where the best opportunity is, and then leaving your home, your family, your girlfriend, all of that, um, that still sticks to me is like the humanity behind the player. All right. That's a good one. I like that. Yeah. And then the, the second one, there, there's a moment in the book where you have to like ask yourself the question if you're gay or not, yeah. um, or if you're attracted to men. And I just thought the way that you wrote about that and like your thought process of like, Oh, I've never in my life actually just like checked myself if I think this way or not. Uh, I just thought that was like such a, an oddly again, like oddly human, thought to have and it's just something you don't think about from an everyday perspective which wasn't necessarily related to soccer but i thought that was a, a nice little moment where you captured kind of what what a lot of people do when you get to you know 20 25 30. Yeah. looking back i could probably say that a big reason i wrote the book was actually for that chapter and the one on relationships 
The book started yeah. as a collection of essays, and it was George Qureshi. Do you remember George? Mr. No. Soccer. He started Howler, and then he was the first editor of the, the Athletic Soccer Vertical. George made me create, or not, he nudged me to create a through line. But at, at first, it was just essays, and the, the chapter about the sexuality and then maintaining a relationship as a professional athlete were mm -hmm. probably the two that I really felt like I had a story to tell for. So that was fun. Okay. Well, it worked. Yeah. That was a good digression <laughs> to start the show. And for anyone listening, we didn't coordinate that before we started. The, that was a genuine, the, those were the two moments that stuck out with me. Um, so Bobby, I, I want to cover a lot of your perspectives on uh, what what you had talked about in the book, but maybe more current topics as well. Major League Soccer, USMNT, um, maybe looking ahead at the women's team going into the summer of the World Cup for them. And then we have some fan questions from the Discord. So uh, I hope you're ready. But Maybe let's just start from like the the transition of being an accomplished soccer player to an analyst and an author. What was some of the more challenging parts of making that transition from having played the game for most of your life professionally to now needing to look at it from the outsider's perspective? Yeah, really good question. It is I hear you three month old there. That's great. That's very cute. It is um yeah, it's a great question. I would say the, the main thing is that when current players watch people on TV or hear their podcasts, they're always talking. You kind of think to yourself, oh, it's just sitting up there talking about soccer, right? How hard can that be? I talk about soccer all day, every day with my friends. But once you go in front of a camera or once you actually become a member of the media you know, and personality group, it is so much more than talking about soccer because A, being in front of a camera or behind a microphone is a real craft, right? The way that we all sit at a restaurant and talk about soccer is different and it requires different energy, different cadence, different different verbiage than it does to be in front of a camera. And if you were to do A in the scenario of B, it would be bad and suck. Um, and the second is just the topics that people want. I mean, the truth is that like when you turn on the TV and ESPN and Fox and these places are so good at it, that when you turn on the TV, you expect to get certain topics that you know are naturally compelling and engaging and want you to think and talk about them. And that's actually hard to catch on to. And as a player, you want to talk about, you know, the undervalued domestic players or the glue players in a team. And the second you go to the media, you're like, nobody gives a shit about any of that. They only truly deeply want to talk about Zlatan, which is hard to accept, but that's what pays the bills and you come around to it at some point. Yeah. And I mean, I've even noticed in the YouTube sphere, the things that I maybe want to talk about or are most passionate about is like the underlying tactics or highlighting a lesser known player and maybe how they, they take a first touch and they're the pivot player, but that doesn't get the views. So is there anything that frustrates you about the way that media covers it? I mean, because it needs to be engaging content, is there something that you just wished was a little bit more prevalent within the media space? Yeah, it's another awesome question. I think about this often. I tell anybody to listen, so I appreciate you giving the space. I think that there's two things. One, I I'm gonna say this both as like not pulling a punch, but as you don't know what you don't know as I can. I think that people in the media are bad at doing a good job. Um, and God, that was a that was a bad stupid sentence. Please but, elaborate. Like sometimes there's a complicated thing that happens. And part of the reason that I was ready to get out of media is that I wanted skin in the game, right? Part of the reason that I have a venture in the betting space now is that 
betting content is regular content, but better and harder and like more specific and like actually involves honesty and authenticity because you're putting skin in the game, right? Like it's one thing to be like, oh yeah, that team's good because of X and Y. But once you turn that into betting focused content, you actually have to be right. It's not just a thing you say. So a complicated thing happens and I'm looking around and I should say the other part of my work is in the strategy and advisory. So like, again, Mm -hmm. I need to be good and right because there's real wins and losses and revenue on the line. And and something happens in the soccer space and I look around, I'm like, there's six dimensions to this and why are we only talking about two of them? And I get to the original point that people want simplicity, but there's also a space where it's like, I don't know, somebody should just explain what's happening in the world and why decision maker A, who is maybe getting bashed or praised would have done that because that person had to go through all six layers. And just because you at The Athletic only have six hours to churn out an article doesn't mean you can't go through all six layers. Um, And I don't know if that's a lack of experience, the fact that people that cover soccer have not actually been at clubs or been in the business world, so they only have experienced the first two. But I think there's still a giant space to dig deeper into the complexities of what's happening um, at the level to which the decision maker actually has to do it. Um, And I think that the second part to that Two is, well, let me give an example first. Like, what do you think of the Apple deal for MLS? Okay, so my perspective on this is that I appreciate the enhancement of the the coverage, but I don't appreciate that it takes away local markets, that it puts it behind a paywall. And if I think about, you know, my intention is to help lower the barrier for people to fall in love with the game, then the Apple deal is bad for that. Um, maybe it's good for me as someone who's just obsessed completely with it, but that's kind of where I, I need to separate myself from. Well, I also, part of what makes soccer special is that other people love it as much as you do and you can share in that. Yeah. And I think the Apple deal kind of falls short in, in making sure that continues. It like, but because they took out ESPN, I mean, there's still the one, there's still the name, same number of games a week on cable. Yeah. I mean, so for instance, I live in the Philadelphia suburb and before the Apple deal, you could have bars that were showing uh, the Philadelphia Union games. There is still a deal, um, I think, with the satellite company where bars can pay and and show that. But from from my personal experience now going within that area, there's not really like a, a an interest at the local level. To, unless you're already a fan of that team. Yeah. And maybe that's not the point that you're getting at, but that's kind no, of my I think perspective. That's a, I think that's a fair yeah. point. What I'm thinking about Little Boar is the monetary part of it, right? They put out $2.5 billion over 10 years, right? What does that mean? Like, everyone's a great deal, great job, MLS. But you ask anybody in our space, like, okay, break that down for me. It's nev- it, it hasn't been done. So if we do break it down, and these are the layers like three, four, five, six that I wish had come out more, right? Two hundred fifty, so two point five billion to ten is two hundred fifty million dollars a year, right? That in itself would be a great number. The original deal, and stop me if this is not what you want to hear. Or this is boring, but like I'm no, perfect. Yeah, <laughs> the original deal for MLS was was highlighted at ninety million. That included MLS plus U.S. soccer. Best estimates from what I've seen are that about 30 million of that was the U.S. soccer component. So the MLS deal was about 60 million dollars a year, mm-hmm. only the MLS, right? 
So you say 60 million to 250 million. That's great. But A, part of that 250 million are production costs, which are not usually included mm -hmm. in deals. Best estimates of that are about 50 to 60 million dollars on its own, right? So that is, you know, down from 250 to 190 straight away. Yeah. 190 is still pretty good compared to 60. It's about 3x. If you look at traditional sports rights growth in the US, and the best points here are NBA and NHL, because NFL is its own friggin' thing, right. and baseball is like national TV diet. So the best yeah. comps are NBA and NHL. Domestically, they grow at 3x deal over deal, usually on like a 44 to five year rights deal. So this is great, right? MLS went from 60 million to something like 190 million overall. They hit that 3x. The problem is they did they did it on a two year like a two a two x cycle, so the first four years might be great. They got their three x, but they're flat on that on the next cycle. It's a zero. It's a it's a it's a one x plane. So yeah. over four years at three x of one one eighty, right? They're losing what leaving like a billion dollars on the table relative to what you would expect just on like natural sports rights growth. Okay. Yeah, but, I mean. That, that's like present value of a dollar. So in my day job, I'm in financial services. You yeah. would look at like the future value of what that number is. 250 million today isn't the same value as 250 million eight or nine years from now. And like you have to, so like there's, there's these, all the elements where like everyone says 10 years, 2.5, Apple, whatever, great job. But it's like, I don't know, maybe we should just spend five more minutes and, and Google some things and look at it. The other part is like, how does this compare to the other leagues in the world? Because as fans, we don't care at all about like, you know, we care about what it does to our team and the value. So it's 190 million. We'll say it's a, we'll say it's 180 million once the league takes off, you know, 10%. So 180 distributed by, th by 30 teams, that's 6 million a year on the TV deal to each team. What does that mean? Right. Like how valuable is that? How impactful is that? I don't know. Well, I do know because I've looked it up, but like <laughs> most of us don't know because nobody told us. Right. Yeah. You know, I think it's something like seventh in the world. I think it's like the big five. And then I believe Portugal has a bigger TV deal per team. And then it's MLS. So like, all right, that's pretty good. We want to be one of the biggest leagues in the world. Like that matters. So yeah. this is my example of like, I think that there's this rich level. I think the other thing is like, the transparency around salaries. And I can say this because mm -hmm. I, Paul and Sam and Tom and I go back and forth all the time, but I'm like, no, but like, like <laughs> this is a, this is pretty clear and dry guys. Why? And you're, you're talking about the athletic writers. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And they just for the, we have, the audience. We have to <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. saying this and I think that they're overall awesome and like very good and good yeah. people. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, I mean, like, I think that's another example. Like there's, there's answers here. Let's just go down the chain and spend the time. Um, Do you feel like there's an issue in terms of like the dilution of the league with adding more and more teams or is that something separate that, cause you're talking about, you know, this money that is divided by this amount of teams as you add St. Louis, as you add San Diego, as you add maybe Las Vegas or whoever's next that dilutes the pool of what is going out to teams or where the money is split from Apple and other deals? Or do you think the entry fee for a team like San Diego kind of covers that? And you're saying a dilution in what? Player quality primarily? Well, I'd be interested to hear your perspective on that. But now that you're kind of down the rabbit hole of finances, do you feel like that has an impact as well on the, the finance part? Or is it like 
the difference between 30 teams and 32 doesn't really make a huge difference. They paid 500 million one. So like in the last three years with, with Charlotte, no, with St. Louis and they basically made $800 million divided among 27. So that in itself is $25 million each. Like, yeah, they're obviously going to keep expanding. This is the other. Everyone's like, "Oh, they're going." I guess they're obviously not going to yeah. stop at thirty because they're all <laughs> they're all on an operating loss, right? Maybe right. not all, but like I don't know, probably twenty six of twenty nine right now are are at a yearly loss. Like, obviously, they're going to take twenty five million if it comes to them. Um, I guess the big question is: is it is it a good financial decision to own a major league soccer team? Oh, this is awesome. Can I talk about the player quality? Well, let's yeah, do this. please. Let's do yeah. this first. Is it a good decision? Because this is part of what I do. This is like we do a fair amount of M and A advisory. Um, how much do you know, or how much do you think about this question about sports team investments? I personally think about it a lot, and I find it interesting. And I'm not sure where the audience is even feeling like this is going, but I'd be interested to hear your perspective. Okay. And I, why don't you go first? Yeah. I mean, so if I'm a very wealthy person and I have enough money to buy a club, my my investment and my outlook on the future is more about leveraging the the value of my club over time. So what I mean by that is like if I spend if I'm St. Louis City and I spend 250 million on an entry fee and I run an operation for 10, 15 years, and the value of MLS goes up, the value of teams around me goes up, the entry fee for MLS goes to 700, 800 million. And that makes my club more valuable than what I started it at. And it's a better investment than I can get in, I don't know, the stock market, hedge funds, whatever, then that's a good financial decision. It, like a lot of people consider, and maybe you'll talk about the operating loss, but like a lot of people consider that so many teams run at an operating loss to be a bad financial decision. Like why would anyone want to own a soccer club or a football club? But it's not necessarily about the year over year amount of money that you're spending or making. It's also about the investment that you have to be able to sell later on. Right. Yeah. And what you're speaking to there at the end is a difference is basically the difference between capital gains and writing off losses. So the very yeah. simple one sentence to someone listening, and you'll do a better job of explaining this than I would, but is basically as long as your asset value growth exceeds your losses or even matches your losses, you've made money because you're writing off those losses at your income tax rate and you're making money at a capital gains rate. So it's always, if, you, if you're going to make money either way, you'd rather buy have an asset that makes it on the enterprise value than the cash flow value mm -hmm. is a very simple sentence here. Um, I feel very strongly about this and I come in, I guess I come in everything hot in these podcasts, but like I'm coming in hot on this because I've just done this like a dozen times and everyone comes in with the financial, you know, we're ML teams and sports teams grow at this. And I just find it to be so disingenuous, right? Sports teams from a financial perspective are useful as a diversification, right? It's really hard to predict the future of the world, but it's pr we're pretty confident that people are going to want to show up to a stadium or watch a game on TV, right? Like we're all going to care about yeah. sports in 15 years, even if we don't know what mm -hmm. real estate markets, what technology, like all of this, right? Whether it is a an actual growth asset, I think is much more complicated and probably no, 
yes, it does rise, but like people that can buy sports teams, billionaires have 15, 20% return options come across their desk every single day. And they have become much more mm-hmm. predictable and controllable as like asset classes. So yeah. what I usually tell people is like, if you want to buy a team, that's great. We can make that happen. You can make that happen. But like, let's not spin this narrative in the pitch deck or in your mind that this is about this is about financial return. Like, yes, maybe you get financial return, but it's more about doing an awesome thing that like you can do because you you can afford it. Um, and that's also yeah. fair, right? People buy houses, they buy cars, they buy art, right? Like, this is the same thing, and it'll be fun. It'll be like I I just think that that is a much better level setting than the idea that you're going to come in and make a year like you know uh, like a yeah a financial return year over year i'm with you it's essentially do you have enough money to play fifa or football manager in real life and do you want to do that to impact a community exactly and what i would say is i think the problem here is because people have the wrong expectations that's where we see the financial distress because if you go in with Mm -hmm. the right like right x financial expectation then you could think about your expenses and your potential revenue growth and your costs and like all of these things that actually matter on the balance sheet much more intentionally opposed to like, we're going to go in and it's going to make money and the enterprise value is going to go up. And that is the real cliff edge of the whole thing. Can I, can I like pivot us a little bit? Because it's very apparent that you have done your homework on this. You do this for a living now, basically is uh, where you're at. And as you left media, like this is what you work on now. Um, You also went to Stanford, which I'm sure has a foundation of how you were able to kind of remove yourself from the game and and start uh, positive ventures. Um, With how academies are set up now in the US, and we see more and more players choosing soccer as a way to make a profession and make a living at 17 or 18 years old, signing more and more professional contracts. Do you feel like they're missing like an important part of this is like an age old American. This feels a very American question, but like, do you feel like they're missing a part of you? You probably couldn't do what you do now. If you had never gone to Stanford, I'm going to make that assumption or, or you would be worse at it because I'm of the opinion, and I've said this since the DA started, you know, in 2009 or whatever it was, that I don't think we should trade tens of thousands of young people's at like teenage years and young professional years at the risk at, at like the small percentage chance we have of winning a World Cup. Right? That is not a trade off that I think I would take when you truly think about the holistic pros and cons of it. I think the thing that I challenge, and this is this is probably speaks to my need to swim against the tide, which I accept, right? And I know that I'm in the minority of this opinion, is I do not see, I mean, I I see the evidence. I just don't, I'm not as convinced by it as others that all of this has helped our soccer standing in the world, right? In 2002, and again, we don't want to go into this, we don't need to, but I think it's worth challenging whether the $300 million the thousands of kids who have missed out on high school and college has been worth it, right? Like, are we any better now than we were in 2002? Um, and I'm not sure that that's the case, right? In 2002, we were in a World yeah. Cup quarterfinal team. There were nine teams above us, probably two or three beyond. Like, we were in the 15 to 25 bucket. $300 million, 20 years, and thousands of kids later, we're still in the 15 to 25 bucket. And I don't, I see no, Nothing that makes me particularly confident at the moment that we're going to move above that. Um, 
But I mean, World Cups are like they there's not a lot of data, right? They happen once every four years. It two thousand two was an amazing team, but could that have been a flash in the pan where now in the we're in twenty twenty three things are maybe getting a little bit more consistent in terms of performance. And and that's more of a hypothetical. Yeah. But I mean nineteen ninety eight, like we also kind of kicked Brazil's butt in the in the second round. We lost and we we're up a man, but two thousand like you yeah. I mean, so you you think you are more confident that we are improving. Yeah, I think if you like if you're looking at uh if you zoom out yeah. and look at a graph of performances and and skill and technique all of that the the 2002, the 1998, uh 2009 Confederations Cup, like those are all kind of short-term blip-ups where you get a little bit of a this is what it looks like to be really really good. Um but we're kind of like on that long-term path of being consistently higher and higher up to the point where hopefully we at some point win a world cup or, or do something on what the international stage, but that we're not blipping and that we are, there's no, I, there's none. I mean, 2018, but, we didn't even qualify. Point two, right. Especially with the U 20 world cup, it's four or five straight that we've made it to the quarterfinals, which I think we're the, we're the only one to do. So we have an incredible record there. Um, people also point to, to generation to GA cup results when now MLS teams have won the last three 17 ones and regularly compete with Flamengo and Valencia and Boca or River Plate. Um, and then the last one, and I think that those are fair points, right? I don't know. I don't have a great way to contextualize those, except when you look at our profession. And then people always say we have more players in Europe. And I say, how many players does Gambia have in Europe now? How many does, Mo like, how many does Mali? How many does Japan? Like, Everyone has more players. Basically, everyone has more players in the Big Five and Italy and Argentina have less. Yeah, it's more of a, a globalization of the sport. Are we have more players in Europe as a positive sign of our youth development, and we don't have the context. We also say, like, look at our players. You know, look how much more technically and tactically savvy they are. Like, I don't, have you watched Scandinavia? Have you watched Japan? Have you watched like have you watched the Czech? Like, everyone has gotten better at football, soccer, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. And these, you can, you can call these little types of hard questions. Like, I think we have this general narrative that American soccer is on the rise, right? MLS games have more attendance, which like also isn't true. If you take out the expansion teams per average, MLS teams are down in attendance um, to, to the 2019 pre COVID years. Um, so I think this is one of these really hard questions where like, is America soccer on the ascent? I don't know. Maybe I I'm just not as confident What's your lean? I would lean not. And I think that's important because then you actually have to remake more hard decisions. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Maybe having this conversation doesn't. Like, what hard decisions can you make, right? Can you really restructure MLS? Could you restructure? I don't know. But it just feels intellectually right. like something I wish that. You're, <laughs> you're kind of explaining the the common case of, like, you see a cause and you see an effect and you combine the two but they're not really related to each other. And you're saying that the, the amount that the, the globe itself has kind of become smaller is, and the quality of training throughout the world is what's actually driving change on the U S side, but also on everyone yeah. else's side as well. So it's kind of like a, we're, we're riding the rising tide that exactly. everyone else is. Exactly. And are we actually, we actually gaining edge or competitive advantage within that? I, I don't know. I, I'm just not sure we've, 
yeah, I don't have as good of a grasp as I, I would yeah. like to. <laughs> I guess like on that point, and since you said no in the yes or no, um, I was going to ask about the U20 World Cup and if you feel like this is kind of just looking at the team and the quality of the team and the way that we've gone about the four games, we've given up, given up zero goals. Um, do you feel like there's any turning point at all where it's the U.S. is joining those tier one nations? Yeah, this is the hardest part about it. I mean, if you only, well, I would, I guess I would tell somebody that tells me that to be like, I don't know who the, uh, who else has done well on the U20 World Cup over the years. I don't know if it's like, if it's Brazil and France and Argentina and then, okay, that's great. But if it's not, and it's other countries and maybe we should just ignore the U20. But I think there's, I think there's some signal in the U20 World Cup. The other thing is like, who have we beaten in these tournaments, right? Because so far we've played Fiji, New Zealand, Slovakia, and Ecuador's a good win, right? Ecuador, it seems to, I mean, it's a good win, not a great win. Yeah. One thing I did after the last U20 World Cup was go back and look at like the Michael Bradley years, because I think we made the quarterfinals three out of four or something, but they actually beat Brazil and Netherlands. I'm, I'm making up the details mm-hmm. here, but you get, so I would just say like, A, does U20 World yeah. Cup matter? And B, to your point about the sample size of a tournament, does, like, have we actually beaten anybody? You know, was it, yeah, I think, you know, last time beating yeah. France was pretty awesome. That was cool. Like that, that Musa Diaby team. Mm-hmm. Um, so Again, I think that it's better to make it than not. Whether it matters, nobody has really put together a compelling case except the fact that you hear the World's World Cup in quarterfinal and we get really excited. Okay, so from an objective perspective, you can really only look at the performances and teams can only play against the teams that are in front of them. But I want to ask you from an analytical yeah. perspective and someone that's played the game you know, fairly recently in the past, you you went through the youth U.S. development cycle and you played with the U17s as well. Do you see like a a genuine improvement, a tangible improvement in the technical ability of players that play for yeah, the U.S. For now? Sure. Absolutely. Um, I think again, and the question is whether we've had more growth than everyone else has. You know, because everyone yeah. across the globe has gotten better technically. And fit like in all in all components, yeah. and I it's hard for me to to understand whether we've gotten better than like France at the top and their growth, or the countries next to us like Morocco mm-hmm. and Poland and Norway. And, you know, I feel like so we yeah players now are definitely. I just played my alumni game at Stanford, and we got our we got our asses kicked mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. But like yeah, every player on that team is probably more technically capable than my group. Um, yeah. I think there's other intangibles that are too curious, but yeah. I mean, you seem to take a global perspective on a lot of these questions. Do you think that, you know, from Major League Soccer to Sweden to then Norway, where you played, uh, and finally back to the USL in Pennsylvania, did these experiences shape your perspective on soccer globally? And how do you think that that impacts how you feel about the game and how you think about the game now? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, they've informed me globally. You know, the first thing you realize when you go to Sweden, and Norway is like, they don't care about MLS. They like, they all want to live and play in the U S and make them play in the bigger stadiums, but they have very little respect for it as a league, right? We're over here and especially working at the MLS office, you think about the growth and, and all the beautiful things that are happening, which are legitimately exciting. And then you go abroad and you're like, oh yeah, there's still a, a huge, a long way to go. So I think that that was humbling yeah. and that context was really important. But then also the football components, right? Like every culture prioritizes things differently. 
and I think the opportunity to learn that, right? So in, in Scandinavia, it's about competitiveness, you know, and MLS is about energy. It's about pressure. It's about duels. And in Scandinavia, it's like, I've never been schooled on the importance of staying compact and starting together and the distance yeah. of our lines and our angles. And I think, you know, I'm sure it would be different if I were to take that to Ghana or I would take that to Peru. There'd be a little, like, little nugget that they prioritize. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about the tribalism of Major League Soccer fans and even taking into context like we we kind of have on Twitter now the Euro snobs, the MLS snobs, people that really want to make sure that the domestic league is growing and that the quality is being shown worldwide. Do you have perspective on, yeah. on that? I know before we we hit the record button, you had said something about Major League Soccer. Um, so I'd love to dive a little bit more into that and how you feel. Maybe we'll start with the tribalism of the domestic yeah, league. This has been bouncing around my head. I've never said that loud. So I'm really curious to hear if you, if what you think of this is that I actually think the sports and tribalism is really good and important. I think obviously it crosses the line and that's horrible. But at, to a certain extent, like horrible people will probably do horrible stuff anyway. And the fact that it's in a Venn diagram, like there's no causation to the sports tribalism stuff. And one of the things that, that made me sad about, uh, I guess, like the, the one of the many things that makes me sad about current politics is it makes tribalism more loaded or dangerous. When actually, if I'm a Duke fan and I hate North mm -hmm. Carolina, like it just makes my life more fun and exciting to feel tribal about that. Um, and I think that there's something yeah. about the fact that as progressives in America, we want to get rid of the tribalism. And yet, I don't know, maybe it has some good and it's exciting in the sports way. What, what do you think of that sentiment? Yeah, I think like I do agree that sports are fun and people love sports because of yeah. the tribalism. You can think that way for 90 minutes and you can cheer on with your own team and feel the, the joy when Duke beats North Carolina or uh, who's whoever Stanford's main rival is like that. That is something that you can look forward to that takes away some of the pain of what else is yeah. happening in your life. Like for me, the reason why I feel so strongly about soccer is because it's one of the few things in my life where I can always have something to look forward to. And maybe one of the reasons why I feel tribalism towards Major League Soccer is because I lived abroad in London for a few years. I know how the perspective is, like you talked about. No one really cares about it. No one respects it. Um, but at the same time, like it's an important artifact of, of who I am yeah. and how I feel about my region, about about my my country. Like I would never be caught dead, you know, putting a an American flag on my car and you know on a pickup truck and driving it around. But I will happily go to a USMNT game all dressed up in yeah. American flags. Like that's my way to feel patriotic and tribal about America. Um, so yeah, I think your, your response has definitely yeah. ignited something in me that sees the, the positive benefits yeah. of that. But you're right too. Like words, words kind of dilute and lose their meaning, especially within the yeah. political climate that we live in today. Like tribalism now probably means something like I'm not talking about for, this is more for anyone listening, not for you, but like tribalism that I'm talking about is more about how do you feel proud about something and, and get extract yeah. joy out of that because of where you are, yeah. who you're supporting rather than I think what, yeah. what's important to what you're saying. And I think everything you said was really well said was 
it's possible to decouple that tribalism from hatred or anger or meanness. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't need, maybe according to the official definition, they do, but like from a sports sense, you should be able to have a without B. So yeah, I like, I like, yeah, it's a good thing. On the MLS, so you want to know about um, the MLS year sign? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that one of the sad truths over the last 20 years of the American soccer discourse is that the people conveying the pro-realm message are kind of assholes and nobody wants to listen to them. Because I think it's, I think the message is obviously a good one, right? Like, who does it? Like, obviously, we all want pro-realm. No, no average fan benefits because the billionaires have secured their, their upside. Like, what are we talking about here, right? It's just the fact that you're yelling in my face, and I would rather agree with anyone and anything except you being an asshole right now. You know, like, if friggin', like, if Doyle had written about pro-rel instead of MLS 15 years ago, we would for, we would have pro-rel right now. You know? Because he, like, he's an incredible yeah. storyteller that people want to get behind. So you're you're more about pragmatic voices rather than than loud ones. And that's one of the reasons why there's a, a disconnect. Are just like mean and not people that other people that an average person wants to support. <laughs> that's not how you get someone on your side and feeling feeling positive about your perspective. Yeah. Um, so I, I did want to ask you about your feelings on Major League Soccer. So I asked you before we started recording about how you felt about some of the early season stories, maybe FC Cincinnati winning as many points as, as any other team. Um, how do you feel about early season major league soccer stories? Is there anything that sticks out I'm, to you? I'm a little bit, uh, I'm a little bit bummed out right now about the MLS stories. And listen, like, I don't know. I started to, I, I, I've grown up my whole life, a diehard MLS fan, right? I went to DC United games as a kid. Some people dream of playing the Premier League. Like I legitimately dreamed of getting drafted and playing in MLS. And yet, what's happened? Which happened? That was my, you know, that was it. And that's all to say that I feel like I've always given MLS the benefit of the doubt. Sometime around 2019, perhaps because I was watching every game of every weekend and my life was entirely consumed, I started to feel like, man, this isn't like there's a, there's been something been lost here. And maybe that was accelerated when my contract negotiations like didn't go well and I left MLS. Like maybe there's some bitterness, right? I'll give that background to this. But I can't help but feel really since that halfway point in 2019, like MLS has lost some energy and some like com- some of its compelling nature for me. And I always come back to this thing that the most important thing in entertainment, because MLS isn't just against the Premier League and the NBA, it's against Succession and Ted Lasso and all entertainment forms, is that unless you're a hum- like a genius of humor, like a Ted Lasso or a Parks and Rec, the most important thing in entertainment is metaphorical death. Like I need to feel like there's something incredibly important on the line at all times. And then and NBA, it's legacies. It's like individual stardom and legacies. In the Premier League, it's the fact that it's the $200 million cliff, right? In MLS, like, I don't know, what is that right now, right? Why, what, what matters for the first, even if you miss the playoffs, what's your metaphor day? Even like if you go, Kansas City lost eight straight games to start the year, and they're going to finish and like, they're going to get a home. Play. I was about to, yeah. So it's like, why on a Saturday night, like, what is my hook from an entertainment perspective? You know, um, that's how I feel. So we could talk about Cincinnati, yeah. what, which has been really cool. Like Chris Albright, Pat Noon, and Kyle McCarthy, super cool. 
Um, we can talk about LAFC, like just in a, in a dominant tenure, like we haven't seen before. But all I think is like, dude, no, nothing matters as long as players really feel pressure and feel stakes, which we just don't have right now. Uh, and to a certain extent, the teams that do well in MLS, yeah. the teams that happen to care week in and week out, like that should not be the competitive advantage in a league. And I think you've you've made the point very succinctly about the the you need something to hold on to. You need something on the line, and it's it's funny you talk about the the teams that do well find a way to care mm -hmm. week in and week out. We a lot of the times when something happens in Major League Soccer, a great goal is scored. People will make the mention of. Oh, well, it was against an MLS defense. I don't think those defenders are any worse or better than other leagues in the similar tiers, but the difference is that they don't necessarily have to care that that goal went in at that moment in that game. It's three straight, and you're always a two-game win streak from being back in the playoffs. I think this also goes... And your coach is your sporting director, and you're not going to get fired. Those two... I mean, we say this, and I don't know. Everyone's like, "Oh, you know, managers got fired." Say there's no pressure in this league, but like, oh, he had a long. Well, that, that's a, a whole other story. But um, I also think there's another alternative of Major League Soccer that doesn't get discussed enough, where instead of where we are with Apple and nine playoff spots, at somewhere around like 17 or 18, they see the the, the TV ratings plateau, and of course, they don't do anything, right? They prioritize. Unfortunately, there is this like pretty hard. Um, two by two to balance of basically national relevance and local relevance, especially in MLS. And MLS has hmm. basically always prioritized local relevance, right? There's nine playoff spots so that Real Salt Lake and Orlando can feel like they always have shot at the playoffs. So they get 2,000 extra fans every game, right? They go from 15,000 to 18,000. The problem with that is the other games do not matter. So they and like the other games do not matter. When I turn on ESPN, there's no stakes, there's no pressure. Like I can I can see that Rodolfo Pizarro, who I should be turning on the TV for, is like mostly indifferent. Right? But they could have yeah. trimmed the playoff spots instead of going bigger to nine. They could have gone to like three. So now all of a sudden you have seven or eight clubs that really feel pressure and want to push it. Seattle, Portland, Atlanta, New York City, you know, like you know, LA LA. And at all times, including week four their players feel real pressure. So yeah, it's true. Maybe less people show up to Real Salt Lake on a Saturday. Yes. Um, maybe you only ever have Atlanta, Seattle, LAFC on TV any, any given Sunday, but like everyone makes more money because yeah. now all of a sudden looking back to the TV deal, which is probably leaving a billion dollars in the table in the back half of it is now larger in that. I mean, going back, I think if you're Real Salt Lake, I think the fluctuation is something like 5,000 fans between being a good team and a bad team, right? Roughly like an average, 100, something like $100 per average ticket price. So you're the math person here. 5,000 times 100 is $5 million. They might miss out on $5 million individually, right? Which is a lot of money. But if that TV deal goes from 150 in 2023 to 2026 to 450, they now have made $12 million, yep. so $7 million more than they were missing out on, right? And Yeah, I think this will help me. you make your point. It's it is 500000 not $5 million. Yeah. yeah. But you get like, anyway, I don't, and listen, let me do a caveat, right? <laughs> yeah. I say this stuff with a strong opinion because I think opinions are important to like put your skin in the game and move conversations. So I could be mm -hmm. wrong about all of this. 
what's important to me is like, I think that these are really, I think that these conversations are important. Even if I get egg on my face and I'm wrong, I'm willing to be like, why haven't we thought about this? And, you know, I hope people do get in your comments yeah. or in your discourse and be like, that was friggin' stupid. He's obviously wrong for X, Y, and Z, but at least we're having a conversation that moves things along. So if we do advance the conversation then and move things along, do you have any other opinions about what can add to that pressure outside of reducing the amount of playoff spots? What what does your perfect Major League Soccer season the, the, like? the answer a lot of people give her is pro-rel. I don't even know. I think regardless of how you set it up now, you set it up with like in, in some type of guaranteed floor, which like, I don't know. The thing about the Premier League is right. like there truly is death on the line for that club. You can turn into Blackburn or you can turn into Sunday. Like, you know, if you go from having 30 million mm -hmm. in revenue to like 24 million and you're never going to go before 24 million is like, does that really get me to turn on the TV? So I don't know that it's pro rel. I think the best other thing you can do is probably player bonuses. I think like if you make, mm -hmm. if you give Shakiri Max Shakiri's salary at 2 million and let him <laughs> earn 6 million. If he finishes in yeah. the playoffs, like, all right, like now we're talking. I mean, this is the Bundesliga, right? The Bundesliga, a regular contributor can something like double their weight, double their comp from bonuses. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the yeah. other... But then we might not get the Shakiris to, to come to Chicago Fire. I would say if we're going to get the current state of some of these players, and we're all better off if they don't come at it's, yeah. it's also, I think, yeah, like, fair. Like, it feels like we could be more intentional about who moves the needle. Like, was anybody going to come watch Shakiri anyway? Mm -hmm. like at the, I I'd be no. I he's he's not a Beckham level. Like, there's very few Beckham. Even I would argue, like the the ability for Major League Soccer to build true stars in the league is is not like at the the level that I would like to see. I like I think Tiago Almada could be. A, a true star um and there's a lot to say about being able to see that player play when they're 21 22 years old and they're going to be sold for i don't know 30 million 35 million in the transfer window there's very little to like a person that's not paying immediate attention to that that doesn't see it and i guess that's kind of i'm finding my answers to revolve around one perspective of like it's very hard for someone that isn't already like completely absorbed by this already to figure yeah. out who these players are what totally. matters in matrix totally. soccer what one to get I've excited pitched, about i'm kind of just going through like my classic records i don't really have more things to say beyond what i've said here but <laughs> i generally i've pitched to people that basically every game should I think the underused part of sports entertainment is on-screen graphics. You know, I don't need my full 29-inch TV or whatever it is to show the field. You could actually give me a little graphic in the bottom left that shows who's on the field and who the most important players are. So you're creating basically a micro-match within it. So yes, I'm watching Atlanta versus Philly, but you're also giving me an Almada versus Carranza little thing where it's like who has more touches yeah. who has more you know on ball value added who has more chance like whatever it is but you're building the narratives in a side way um so that the uh you know i think so that the announcers can still speak to like the uh, but then that that graphic grabs the new fan in and that's what brings people into the tent 
I like that a lot. Um, uh, we are running out of time, Bobby, so I'm going to ask you one last question, um, which is, is there a consistent, this is a little bit of a pivot again, so sorry if you have more things to say about MLS. Is there a consistent experience that you feel like a lot of professional players go through that isn't really talked about or gets enough attention from the public? Mm-hmm. Like, what what do we miss by not being professional players and not having your experience? That's interesting. It's a really interesting phrasing. The word that I would use is, I would say, emotion, like just the general volatility of it. And that every day is a rush or a crash, right? If you play well, if your team wins small side at the end, if you're picked in the starting lineup and tactics, it's a rush. But if you're not, right, if you're in the other 11 as like the second group for the tactics, or if you're in the, the weaker possession group, it could feel like your whole world is crushing, crushed. Because as a 20-something before kids, you have one thing to value all of your worth, and it's as a player, and the, the emotional volatility that that creates, uh, I think it's hard for people to understand. All right, Bobby, thank you so much for your time. Do you no. have any uh, final words for It's Called Soccer? I really like talking about this stuff. So thank you. Yeah.